Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Stephanie Thornton's latest book, And They Called It Camelot, a fictionalised account of Jackie Kennedy Onassis' life, is being vaunted as the book club pick of the year from the day it was launched, a great starting point for any author. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler. And today, Stephanie talks about the challenges in writing an intimate portrait of the former First Lady's life nearly 60 years after the shocking events in Dallas. We've got a special 4th of July giveaway, three ebook copies of And They Called It Camelot, going to three lucky readers. To be in, you must enter the draw on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com, or on the Facebook Binge Reading page. And while you're there on the website, why not leave us a comment or subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes? We always love to hear from our listeners. But now here's Stephanie. Hello there, Stephanie, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat about Jackie Kennedy and all things book related. It's wonderful. And also, I just love to say that you're in Alaska, and this is the first podcast interview I've done to Alaska. So that strikes me as being something special as well. And this is the first interview I've done in New Zealand or really anywhere on that part of the world. So first for me as well. That's wonderful. Look, historic fiction is your chosen niche, and you've got a winner on your hands with your latest book. It's called And They Called It Camelot. It's a fictionalized account of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis's life. And a best-selling author, Kate Quinn, has already called it the book club pick of the year. Wasn't that a great way to get started? Yes, Kate Quinn is uh, an author friend of mine. So I was quite tickled that uh, she enjoyed Jackie Kennedy's story as much as I did writing it. Great. Now, readers have strong views, I've got no doubt about the Kennedys, even this far past their their time in office. And the research that you had to do to to get this book together was monumental, I'm quite sure. Both things made it a very big project, didn't they? What made you decide to tackle it? Well, I think Jacqueline Kennedy was a bit of a departure for me because I'm a history teacher by day. I teach high school students. And then I write about these women from history. And typically, I've written about forgotten women in history. So Jackie Kennedy is by no means forgotten. But I think that once I started being interested in her story as a potential novel to write, I found that there's a lot of her story that has already started to be forgotten. There are certain things that people know. She was very fashionable. She was, of course, in the back of the the limo on November 22nd, 1963, when JFK was assassinated. There's the images of her uh, dressed in her widow's black during the funeral. She marries Onassis. But the pieces in between and a lot of her legacy, I felt like people had already started to forget. 
So that was really what drew me to tell her story. And then as far as the research went, I'm a history nerd, so I loved the research. And this actually took me about a year longer to write than a normal, than my other books. There are four other books before this one. And that's just because Jackie is so well-known and so much of her life was documented that I felt like I really had to get it just right. I actually ended up reading so many books on the Kennedys that my husband has to build me a new bookshelf to hold all of my research books. And you have taglined the book, An Intimate Portrait of Jackie O, and much of the story is told from Jackie's inner voice. And I have the real feeling that you must have poured over personal papers to capture that because there is an authenticity about that voice. Well, thank you. Yes, I worked really hard because, again, Jackie is so well-known and she is a beloved icon, not just in America, but around the world. So I felt that I really had to be true to her voice. And I wanted to tell it from the first-person point of view because she led such, such an extraordinary life and was there for so many pivotal moments in history. There's the Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missile Crisis, JFK's assassination, the moon landing, all sorts of things that she essentially had a front row seat for. So I wanted the reader to be able to see those events unfold through her eyes. I oftentimes joke that writing historical fiction is the closest thing that I'll ever get to a time machine. And I really wanted readers to be able to experience that. Um, so yes, I read anything I could get my hands on. So everything from the tapes that she recorded in the days after her husband's assassination. I went to Arlington and the Smithsonian. There was a fabulous uh, museum exhibit that I just happened to hit. It was perfect, perfect uh, moment of serendipity when I was in um, Portland, Oregon, and they had a JFK exhibit with a whole slew of her personal papers. And the, the very kind museum attendants let me break the rules and actually take pictures because I was transcribing everything by hand so I could get it word for word, just so I could get her voice so that it would feel as close as possible to, you know, if she was sitting down and telling you about her life over a cup of tea. Sure. Now, one of the controversial aspects of it that is, is kind of hinted at in the book, but um, not specified, is her relationship with her brother-in-law, Bobby, after her husband's death. It's well known that he was an incredible tower of strength to her um, after JFK died. But there is a hint that it might have been more than just a brother-in-law, sister-in-law relationship. And you mentioned at the end notes of your book how you tiptoed around that particular hornet's nest. Would you like to... Tell us about that dilemma as a writer. Yeah, that was quite the, the tightrope walk for me as an author, because what I found when I was doing research was there's a camp of biographers who agree that, yes, Bobby and Jackie were very close uh, in the days and years uh, after John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And there seems to be some evidence um, that maybe that relationship was closer than previously um, suspected. And then there's another camp who just say, no, they were just close. But there are some telling details about that closeness. And I, I can't go back and ask either one of them. Um, and I don't think I would necessarily even want to because they were both public figures, but especially Jackie really 
clung to her privacy as much as she could. Uh, but for example, um, Jackie and Bobby went on a vacation. I think it was to Aruba. Don't quote me on the exact spot, but they went somewhere nice and warm and tropical while Bobby's wife, Ethel, took all of her kids with Bobby uh, and Jackie's kids on a ski trip. So that that's not a usual arrangement. And the they were definitely very close um, in that. I think they both helped each other heal um, after JFK's assassination, which was, of course, devastating to both of them. So uh, I like to think that they were kind of the, the anchors for each other in those days. And Jackie also helped Bobby decide that he wanted to run for senator and run for president. And of course, then he ended up following in his brother's footsteps and being assassinated, which is another one of those pivotal moments in history, those big what ifs, what what would America have turned out like had he survived and been chosen as president? And that's something that we'll never know. Now, some people have just seen Jackie, even still today, as a rich, uh, a woman who was taught how to be the decorative piece on, on a rich man's arm. But of, of course, she was much more than that. There is a very self-aware aspect to her character, though, isn't there? How do you view her after spending so much time with her? Would you ever want to meet her? And did you end up liking her by the end of the book? I would definitely want to meet her, sit down and have dinner and just chat about her life. I think my view of her, my respect for her certainly deepened. She was an amazingly strong woman. Uh, and I think that that sometimes gets glossed over because she was fashionable. She did wear these beautiful Oleg Cassini gowns. She was this icon. When she first became first lady, she was not very sure of herself. She was married to a man who honestly cheated on her virtually every chance that he got. And she she had to kind of come into her own. And she did that throughout JFK's presidency. Um, there were a number of things that surprised me uh, when I researched um, things that she helped preserve for posterity. So the, the White House renovation, um, because the White House was in sad, sad shape when she became first lady. So she renovated it to become the people's house to make it the living monument that it is today. She also saved Lafayette Square, which is right next to the White House. There have recently been protests there for the Black Lives Matter movement. She saved Grand Central Station in New York from demolition. Even the, the pyramid for anybody who's been to the Met Museum in New York, which is an amazing museum, they have a full Egyptian temple in the museum that you can see from outside because it's in glass. And she, she's responsible for that. She actually uh, helped JFK, persuade JFK to come out and say, hey, we should save these temples and monuments and things in Egypt that are going to be submerged by the Aswan Dam. And because of that, the people of Egypt, the government said, America, we have a temple that's going to be submerged that we'd like to donate to your museum, uh, to your country, actually. And then it ended up in the Met. So she's responsible for a lot of things that I think people haven't necessarily remembered. And then her personal strength, this woman she had three babies who died, stillbirth, miscarriage. Um, her son, Patrick, died when he was two days old. She survived 
the assassination of JFK, probably had PTSD. And then one of the most telling details um, for me was that when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, he was on life support. And of all the Kennedy clan who was gathered in the hospital room, it was Jackie who signed the orders to take him off of life support because none of the other Kennedys could bring themselves to do it. So this was a phenomenally strong woman. So I have uh, the utmost respect for her and also for her legacy. And I'm, I'm honored that I was able to, to write her story. Fantastic. Now, the, the, the myth of it all, the allusion to Camelot, your title harks back to that. And the book suggests that it rose from quite a coolly calculated quote that Jackie fed to the press within weeks or months of the president's death. It, was, it wasn't something that someone else said about them. It was something she cultivated about themselves. And she knew exactly what she was doing when she said it. She was preserving her husband's brand. Do you think that's a fair summary of how it came about? Yes. So that interview that she gave is recorded for posterity, word for word. So she sat down. She actually gave several interviews in the days and weeks um, after JFK's assassination because she wanted to preserve his legacy. It was painful for her to have to sit down and relive that day and, you know, go back in time. But she wanted to be able to set in stone for posterity, here was my husband's legacy. And so she did make a reference to, it was a musical that was popular at the time that there once was, you know, this this thing called Camelot. And she made the analogy that that was JFK's presidency, that, you know, shining city on a hill type of idea where beautiful women danced with handsome men and all of that. She did later come to regret might be too strong a word, but maybe wish that she hadn't um, used that exact analogy. But I think that it's fairly apt. I wasn't around uh, during that particular presidency, but I've talked to many, many people, readers, family members uh, who say that was a special time. And we're not sure that we'll ever have quite that type of presidency again. So yes, I think she definitely cultivated uh, that image for posterity. You've mentioned about her White House makeover, which actually she accomplished in amazingly short time. It was pretty much done within a year, wasn't it? I'm curious, has the White House had any substantial makeovers since or is what's there now still largely the work of her hand? So the White House, it's actually an interesting, like I said, it's a living museum. So Jackie's really responsible for tracking down antiques that had been used in the White House um, that had been taken by private collectors, sold off, lost, what have you, um, and bringing it back in and then renovating the White House. Um, much of what she did is still there today. They will switch out furnishings and things. So every time there's a new administration that comes in, often it's the first lady who gets to say, we'd like this piece here. We'd like this piece here. They'll do like different carpeting in the Oval Office for every administration and different curtains and things like that. But the last major renovation of the White House, and I maybe shouldn't use the word renovation because Jackie preferred the term restoration, was definitely uh, done by her hand. So we get to credit her for that. And it was pretty amazing in that, yes, she did it in an 
incredibly short amount of time. And she also managed to do the fundraising as well um, because she was given this teeny tiny little budget. And she said, oh no, uh, she was shocked to find that donors were willing to you know, give all of this money or, hey, they have this really fabulous console table that was used by James Madison or what have you, um, that they would donate if Jackie would sit down and have tea with them. And she, well, of course I'll have tea with them if it means getting back this console table or this bureau or what have you. So she, she put her mind to, this is what we're going to do. And she got it done. Now she's been referred to as America's queen and, and she kind of almost liked that, that, that idea herself, but You've done another biography about an American royal, in quotes, and that's America's Princess, the story of Alice Roosevelt, who was Teddy Roosevelt's daughter, a daughter in the White House and a very controversial woman of her time. Tell us about her and what attracted you to her. So I'm actually a huge, huge fan of Theodore Roosevelt um, and have been ever since my student teaching days. So. 17 years or so ago. Theodore Roosevelt is just a larger than life character. And when my daughter was quite young, I think she was around three, we did a trip. I took students to Washington, D.C. and stumbled on this book. It's a kid's book called Mind Your Manners, uh, Alice Roosevelt. And it was about this hoyden of a child, a teenager at the time, who was Alice Roosevelt. uh, And her time in the White House when her dad was president. And from there, I started researching her. And this was a woman before her time. Um, So this is the turn of the century, just the very beginning of the 1900s. Alice came of age. Uh, She had her debutante ball at the White House uh, right after her dad became president following McKinley's assassination. And she broke every rule out there for young women of her time. She smoked cigarettes. She made bets on horses. She drove cars, raced cars, and she said whatever she thought about anyone and everyone at the time. So she had a really intriguing, fun early life, but then she also was there because um, her dad was president. She knew subsequent presidents. Then her cousin Franklin Roosevelt became president. She had a feud with Franklin and Eleanor that she resolved with Eleanor later. She essentially knew personally every president from McKinley right before her dad, all the way up to Jimmy Carter. So although I'm not sure that she knew Jimmy Carter because by that time she was 96 years old, she was called the Washington's other monument. She knew the Kennedys. So she actually gets a little cameo in, and they called it Camelot when she gets to um, chat with Jackie during the Pablo Casal cello concert that Jackie hosted. And then Jackie also gets a moment uh, in American princess uh, to chat with Alice because they did know each other. Um, If you wanted to, have entree into Washington, D.C. society during the 50s and 60s. They said that your ticket in was a dinner invitation to Alice Roosevelt's salons. So she she was a different type of um, icon in her time period, but uh, both she and Jackie were amazing women in American history. So I loved writing both of their stories. That's great. And they weren't forgotten women, but your first three books were about women from a much earlier period, the ancient times. What drew you to writing about the ancients? 
So I love ancient history. The first book that I ever wrote was about Pharaoh Hatshepsut. It was actually the second book that was published. So I I've just always had a passion for ancient Egypt and Hatshepsut. Uh, we found, well, not we, because I didn't do it, but her mummy was found in about, oh, I want to say 15 years ago. It might not have been quite that far, but roughly. And we found that the the accepted story about her had been completely wrong because she had always been seen as this usurper who took her stepson's throne. And then when she died, he destroyed her images because she was such a bad stepmother, ruler, etc. And then they found well, actually, her images didn't get destroyed for like 30 years after he took the throne, after her death, and she led Egypt during the Golden Age. So I couldn't get her story out of my mind because there wasn't a historical fiction book about her that was accurate. So I just started writing that and then set that one aside, found um, Empress Theodora of the Byzantine Empire, who I was teaching world history. She gets one line in history books about how she, during some riots, gave a speech when her husband, who was the emperor, wanted to run away and abdicate. And she said something along the lines of the imperial purple is the best burial shroud, meaning I'm not going to flee. I'd rather die as an empress than turn tail and run like a coward, which then galvanized her husband and his supporters to stay and save his throne. And then that's Emperor Justinian who led the Byzantine Empire during the Golden Age. So I felt like she needed her own book too, because one sentence was not enough. Uh, and then I went on and wrote two more books. Um, the Tiger Queens is about Genghis Khan's wife, daughter, some other women. And then The Conqueror's Wife is about uh, Alexander the Great's women. So the ancient world is also fascinating. So I've, I've got lots of women throughout lots of different time periods of history that I want to write about. So you still do have some more coming? Yes, yes. My next one will be out next summer. It's called tentatively titled Clever Girl. It's about a woman named Elizabeth Bentley, who was an American spy during World War II who spied for Russia. But then when the alliance with Russia fell apart, she became an FBI informer and took down the Soviet spy rings in America. So. Oh, wow, that sounds good. Just harking back to um, Alexandra the Great and Genghis Khan, how on earth do you research women from those periods? Because I'd, I'd imagine there'd hardly be anything left recorded about them, would there? There's not as much. It's definitely a, a different like night and day from, say, especially Jackie Kennedy and Alice Roosevelt. They are mentioned so we know things like, for example, with Genghis Khan's wife, Borte, there's an epic poem that details essentially how Genghis grew up and became the, the leader of all of uh, the Mongols. And she's in there because they were betrothed early on. And then his dad died and he had to leave. He found her again many years later. They did get married. And then a rival clan came and kidnapped her and he had to go rescue her. But it was... It took nine months, and then by that time, she was nine months pregnant, so who was the kid or the, the dad for the kid? And, and then we know that when he was off conquering, she was, you know, ruling Mongolia for him. So there's Gosh. less, yeah, which means that there was more freedom on my end to fill in the blanks. Um, so we still have main events that we have to get from point A to point B, but I got to play a little bit more since there's not as much source material. Sure. Look, moving away from the books and turning to your wider career, 
tell us something about, I gather you're not a full-time writer, are you? You're still teaching. But how has your previous experience or your life experience contributed to your fiction? So I, I teach full-time and then I write full-time. <laughs> so I'm just inundated with history and that's, that's really my passion. So I'm also a, a mom and a wife. And <laughs> so sleep, I can sleep when I'm dead, right? Roosevelt actually says that in American Princess and I felt like that really resonated with my life too. Yeah. So I, I love to travel. I drag my husband and my daughter to all sorts of historical sites. Not right now, of course. I was actually supposed to just be getting back from Morocco yesterday, which was not novel related, but I just, I love history. So walking where the heroines from my novels have been, has been a really powerful experience for me. I just, I, I want to be able to translate that for readers so that they can also appreciate what these women accomplished in a time when women were often not expected to accomplish anything outside of the home. You've got a remarkable bookshelf of books that you've produced. Is there one thing you can say you've done more than any other that's the secret of your success in getting those books written? Oh, that's a good question. I think the key to it is just chipping away a little bit at a time. I'm always kind of odd um, when the box of books comes from my publisher for the first time and I can hold my book in my hand, but that's a culmination of several years oftentimes of, of work. So just, you know, every little bit from the research stage to the writing stage, the drafting, editing, et cetera, it all adds up in the end. Yeah. Look, turning to Stephanie as reader, because we're starting to come to the end of our time together, and this is the joys of binge reading, we want to inspire people with inspiration for other books they might like to read and enjoy. What do you like reading, and have you got any recommendations for listeners? So... I will try to keep my list short, but some of my favorite historical fiction authors, we've already mentioned Kate Quinn. I was a fan of hers long before I'd ever met her or chatted with her on Facebook. Her books, she's actually got four books. It's a series, but you can read them on their own that are set in Rome. And then she did a couple in Renaissance Italy about the Borgias. Her latest have been about World War One and Two. That's the Alice Network and the Huntress. Chanel Clayton writes amazing historical fiction that is um, all about Cuba in this century. And she has a new one out actually this June. So uh, that one is about the big Memorial or Labor Day hurricane. Um, I got to read an advanced copy of that one. It's called The Last Train to Key West, and it's fantastic. Stephanie Dre has some American novels that she co-wrote with Laura Kamoy, um, America's First Daughter, and uh, My Dear Hamilton, so revolutionary. And then my guilty pleasure, Evie Dunmore just released last year, the first in a series. Um, it's called The League of Extraordinary Women, and they're a little racy, but they are uh, romance novels that are heavy in history, but it's about the British suffragette movement in the uh, late 1800s, mid-late 1800s, um, and they are just fabulous. So those are some of my current favorite authors right now. 
That's fabulous. We've had both Chanel and Laura Carmoy on the show, and I loved both of their books. So we're very much in a common mind there. I, I, I really will look up Evie Dunmore. I hadn't heard of her. Yeah, she has another one coming out this fall. So like I said, they're racy, but they are so fun. Great, great. Look, circling around, looking back down the tunnel of time, is there anything that you change about the way that you've proceeded? Anything that you wish you'd done differently? Or if you had your time all over again, would it be very much the same as, as what's happened? I think every writer has their own path and there's no right or wrong path. I do wish that I could go back to, um, I'd say it would be like me from 2011 um, because that's when I was first starting to send out query letters. It was for my Egyptian novel, which did end up getting published. Um, but I sent it out before it was ready. And I ended up with, I forget the exact number, but I feel like it was around 183 rejections before I set that one aside and wrote about Empress Theodora. And then I went back and rewrote the whole Pharaoh Hatshepsut book, uh, which became Daughter of the Gods. So I guess if there was one thing, it would be to go back and tell prior me uh, to save myself a lot of heartache. Uh, the book's not ready yet. <laughs> Don't send it out yet. Here's what you need to do. But, you know, it's a learning process. So I had to learn it all somehow. And now that just happened to be how I did it. So you mentioned that was the Egyptian book was not the first. So you had it written, but the first one published was Theodora. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, but you still managed to retrieve the manuscript. So that's really amazing dedication to keep going with it. I, I just loved her story. And I, I wanted readers to be able to read the more accurate version based on the archaeology that was done. But I didn't know how to tell stories properly quite yet. So, you know, a lot of novelists have novels that are under the bed and in drawers and so on. And I just wasn't willing to let that one go. So I dug it out. And like I said, I tore it apart. It's unrecognizable from that first draft uh, that I sent out. But yeah. <laughs> What's next for Stephanie, the writer? You mentioned that you've got the Elizabeth Bentley book coming out. Has that got a title yet? Uh, right now, it's tentatively titled Clever Girl, um, because that was actually uh, the Russian translation. Her code name in Russian was Umnitsa, which translates to I mean, there's different variations of the translation, but the most common one is Clever Girl. So that's what I'm, I'm currently working on right now. And then I'm mulling over some ideas for other novels. So you have one going at a time and it takes you how, how long to write usually? Each book I look at is at least a two-year commitment. So it usually takes me a year to get it written and then sent off to my editor and then about another year for editing and revising and all of that. So, and sometimes they do get kind of overlapped with the book that's coming either before or after them. So right now my editor has Clever Girl and I'm just coming up with ideas and playing with things for the next one. And then I'll start writing that and she'll get my, my revisions back to me and then it'll be a juggling act. Look, do you enjoy interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? I definitely love hearing from readers. Book clubs are a lot of fun. I'm on Facebook, so I have an author page there. 
Stephanie Thornton. I'm also on Instagram. I check Twitter, but I'm not on Twitter quite as much. And then my website is stephaniethorntonauthor.com. And when you say you do book clubs, being in Alaska, I would guess that you can't travel too much to, to attend book clubs. Do you do that by remote or do you actually visit book clubs? Because I'm in Alaska, you're correct. Uh, it's usually Zoom so or Skype, either one. But yeah, I'm, I'm happy to tune in uh, and chat with book clubs. It's actually a lot of fun to hear readers' impressions of uh, my stories so and get to chat about some behind-the-scenes things as well. Well, that's always great to know because maybe the time zones aren't that friendly, but there could be book clubs in this part of the world that wanted to take part if we if they could organize the time that was you know going to be work for both of you so that's good to know it's also good to emphasize that we'll put links to all of these things that we've talked about in the podcast note show notes so that people can click on and find them after after this is ended so that's great thanks so much Stephanie for being with us today it's been wonderful and all the very best with your writing And thank you so much for having me. I love chatting about history. So this has been wonderful. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website, That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.